0: I can have you take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, our verses this morning is going to be verses 1 through 17. If you're looking along in one of our church Bibles, it should be located on page number 1066. The subheadings should read, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And uh, today we are going to be taking a brief break from our Colossians series. But again, we're going to see the supremacy of Christ through this lens of the humility of Christ. And I've titled the sermon this morning, The Fullest Measure of His Love. And we know from the Scriptures from the Apostle John that God is love. We know from the Apostle Paul that God demonstrates His love to us in this. And that is, while we were still sinners, Christ came for us. Christ came paid for us. Christ died for us. Well, I thought I'd begin with a story. Uh, Dr. Henry Ironside tells this wonderful story of a Russian Tsar, and the Tsar's name is Tsar Nicholas. Now, it's not a great story because his name is Nicholas, but that is something to think about. Um, Tsar Nicholas, as the story goes, knew a young soldier, and the young soldier was a friend, uh, was the son of a friend of his. So, Tsar Nicholas decided to take the young soldier and station him in a very safe, secure border fortress, and he gave him a very good job. The job was to look after the money that you were going to pay the soldiers with. Well, as the story goes, the young soldier started well, and then he fell into gambling, and he gambled away not just all of his money, but he gambled away all of the money he was supposed to pay the soldiers with. Well, the time had come to pay the soldiers, and someone was going to come and inspect the books. So the young soldier took out a ledger and he calculated out all of his debts. And at the end of the page, he noticed this is an astronomical debt. And he wrote these words at the bottom of the ledger. He wrote, how great a debt. Who can pay? And rather than face the music, the young soldier set in his heart, unfortunately, to take his life at the stroke of midnight with a revolver. But and waiting for midnight, he fell asleep. Now, Tsar Nicholas had this reputation of putting on the uniform of a common soldier and visiting his troops, and he just so happened to be at that border fortress that night. He walked down the halls, and he saw the light on in the young soldier's room. He walked in, he recognized the young soldier, and he saw the ledger, and he saw those words, how great a debt, who can pay, and that gave him an idea. So the young soldier woke up well after midnight, realized what had happened. He was reaching for his revolver when he saw the ledger again and those words, how great a debt, who can pay? But now there was one word there that was not there anymore. It was a signature, Nicholas. And the young man, frantic, he went to his files and he checked to see if the signature could be verified, and sure enough, it was the czar's signature. And the young man thought to himself, the czar has been here. He knows of my guilt, and yet... He has forgiven me of my debt. I need not die. And sure enough, the Tsar had gone and paid the deficit in full. I share this story because John chapter 13 is about a lot of things. It's about humility, it's about service, it's about mercy, it's about sacrifice. But ultimately, it's about love. It's about the love of a king, it's about the love of our King, King Jesus. You know, in the very first verse of this passage, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And some of your Bibles will read something along the lines of, Having loved his own, he now loved them to the end. That word end in the original Greek language is a word telos. Telos in the Greek means perfection. Telos means completion. Telos means the fullest measure. Christ loves his own to the fullest measure. So what does our king do? He humbles himself. Being found in appearance, he takes on the disguise as one of us, becomes human, but he goes further than that. Perhaps a better way of saying it is he goes lower than that because not only does our king assume the responsibility of our debt, our king takes the role of the debtor. Our king takes the role of the servant. Our king takes the role of the slave. We are the ones who rack up the charges. He is the, ones, he is the one who pays down the debt, covering our sins, washing away our sins. And this is love. It's substitutional, it's sacrificial, and it's humble. Great debt, who can pay? Jesus. Well, this morning, I'd ask that you please stand with me. I'm going to read our passage of Scripture. And then after I'm finished reading, I'd ask that you please remain standing for a a word of prayer. The Scriptures tell us, starting verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher, teacher. And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master nor a, ma- nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, came. That he came as one of us. That he humbled himself. He humbled himself, making himself a man. He humbled himself even to the point of death. Not just death, but death on a cross. Lord, we thank you for the great debt he has paid. For those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we can have our sins washed away can be cleansed by your by his blood that our sins might be separated as far as the east is from the west that we can be pure thank you lord for your pure spotless lamb our king lord this morning i pray that as we read your scriptures that you would help me to articulate clearly but that you would bless our congregation lord may you encourage us may you challenge us from your word And Lord, may you embolden us to live out that example we have from our Savior. We love you. We honor you. We pray all these things in the name, the authority of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Well, as we get started with our study this morning, uh, I want to preface our study by saying a couple of things. First thing is that John chapter 13 is really the second part of two parts to the gospel of John. In my adult Sunday school class, I've often said that the gospel of John is like theater. The gospel of John is like a play. So I want you to imagine John chapter 13 comes right after the intermission. This is the second act. Many commentators break down the gospel of John into two books. Chapters 1 through 12, this is the book of Signs. Chapters 13 through 21, this is the book of glory. In the book of signs, this is mostly about Jesus' public ministry. In the book of glory, this is about Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. In the book of signs, uh, there's many miracles, many signs. In the book of glory, well, there's only really one main sign. In the book of glory, we are on this collision course for the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I also want you to notice for John chapter 13, this is happening right at the Passover festival. The Passover festival, remember, for the Hebrew Jewish people, this was a time in which they would go to Jerusalem, a lamb would be sacrificed, and they would remember, they would remember God's judgment passing over their people. Now, this particular Passover feast was very important. It's important to us. This is what we call the Last Supper. This is Jesus' last meal with his disciples. He gathers his disciples up close. He gives them these teachings. He's about to leave. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to be leaving soon. This is what I want you to remember. So that when I'm not here, you can remember this. You can live by this. Well, in the very first verse, it says it was the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. His time had come and to go to the Father and having loved his own, he showed them the fullest extent of his love. And it says, verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And I want you to notice a couple of things about those first two verses. First, um, I want you to notice that there is a bit of a, what I call, a narrative contrast in those first two verses. Notice the love of, the glory of Christ, what is that contrasted with? The sin, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. It's kind of like a painting or if you've ever seen uh, you know, the love and the brilliance of Christ stands out all the more against the black backdrop of Judas's heart. I also don't want you to, le- to miss this. Don't let this slip because at the very beginning, the Apostle John is letting us know Jesus is, he's going to wash Judas's feet too. He washes all his disciples' feet, even Judas, even the betrayer. This too, this is the fullest measure of Christ's love. You know, we know from the Bible that we're commanded to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us. Jesus goes further than that. He washes his feet, a betrayer, Someone who is an enemy. Someone who's worse than an enemy. It's an enemy who's pretending to be your friend. You know, this morning, I I don't know if you have an an enemy. I don't know, maybe you do. But uh, there's probably people in your life that if you were to be honest with yourself, you would just rather do without. The Bible commands us not just to love them, but if we're going to follow Jesus to honor them, to serve, to humble ourselves because Jesus honors Judas Iscariot even. Well, in verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the time, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And he began to wash his disciples' feet. Again, Narrative contrast. We see the power and the glory of Christ contrasted with the humility of Christ. It's like John the Apostle is saying to us, Jesus is God. He's he's from God. He's going back to God. And what does he do? And so, he takes off his clothes. He washes his feet he, wa- he, he wraps a towel around his waist. You know, the scriptures tell us he took, out his, took off his outer clothing. This probably would have been some type of one-piece tunic that would have covered uh, an individual from you know, their shoulders down to their feet almost. Probably underneath this, he had some type of undergarment, the same undergarment he would have worn on the cross because we know that at the cross, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. This is a very... Uh, I should mention in the early first century for orthodox, religious, Hebrew-Jewish individuals, this was a very modest culture. This is shocking what happens here. This, is, this, is, this doesn't happen in this culture. Jesus had prominence. Jesus was their rabbi. He was their teacher. And what does he do? He takes off his clothes. That's not just humbling. That's almost humiliating. Those things don't happen. Also, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And it should be mentioned that washing someone's feet, this was a task for the very lowest person on the totem pole. This was for the lowest of slaves or servants. In fact, some commentators tell us from history that the Hebrew Jewish people wouldn't even allow Hebrew Jewish servants or slave to wash feet. It's was too demeaning. It was too humiliating. They would only let Gentile servants or slaves do that task. It should be mentioned, obviously, the disciples wear sandals. They walk around in the desert wilderness. Their feet would have been very dirty. Now, I don't think there is a good modern-day equivalent to the ancient foot washer. I know that there's a lot of very dirty jobs. Probably some of you have, have throughout your course of your life, you've had some pretty dirty jobs. Um, recently, During my sabbatical, we uh, went home to see my folks in Michigan. And as we were traveling back, my my parents were very generous with us. They allowed us to uh, take the boat ferry from uh, Michigan back to Wisconsin. And when we got to the port, the port authorities told us that there was going to be rough lake conditions. Now, is there anyone else like me who does not do well with motion sickness, rough lake conditions. Okay, I don't want to be too descriptive, but let me just tell you that I spent the majority of our happy three-hour tour in the bathroom. Uh, It was not a good voyage for me. And uh, not only for me, but for our youngest daughter, uh, she also got sick in the main cabin area, and I feel terrible about this because, you know, I'm there, I'm totally incapacitated, I can't do anything. Uh, daughter gets sick, Michelle's helping her, there's another daughter in the situation, and sure enough, you know, some lowly, uh, very young, you know, just on the job crew kid comes out with the squirt bottle and the towel to, quote unquote, swab the deck, um, I felt so terrible for that kid. Now, I I share that because I have been sick on more than one voyage on the sea or the lake and never, never have I ever seen the captain come down from the bridge to the floor and quote-unquote swab the deck. These things do not happen and this is what Jesus does. He takes on this role. This is unheard of. It's especially unheard of to Peter. Peter says, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's like Peter saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus replies, You do not realize now what I'm doing, verse 7. But later you will understand. Peter says, No, you will never wash my feet. Notice how emphatic he is there In in a grammatical sense. Uh, Peter uses what's called a double negative. He says no twice in one sentence. No, you will never do this for me. Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And at this point in the text, I want you to notice that what's happening is there are two conflicting theories of prominence and greatness smacking heads. Two theories of prominence and greatness happening. The very first theory, this is the theory that Peter has, this is the theory we operate in this world under. This is what I would call the ascending greatness theory. Now, the ascending greatness theory of prominence states that greatness is achieved. Greatness is achieved through promotion, elevation of status, higher titles, raises and compensation, the increase in the number of subordinates you have beneath you, This is what we call in our culture climbing the ladder. This is how our world works. This is what Peter sees. Jesus, on the other hand, has an opposing theory of greatness or prominence. Jesus has what's called the descending greatness philosophy. This is the philosophy of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' philosophy, meaning that greatness is mastered through humility, through service, subservience, servitude. Greatness comes through repentance. Greatness comes through bowing your head. Greatness comes through bending your knees in prayer. Remember what Jesus said? For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to think for a second. Why now why do this miracle right now? Or not miracle, why do this, this foot washing right now? Take your Bibles, if you would, with me. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to move over here real quick. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 7, if you don't mind flipping over for just a moment. In Luke 22, verse 7, this is another great uh, Last Supper passage. This is a passage where Jesus takes the bread, Jesus takes the cup. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It starts in Luke 22, verse 7. Now look at verse 20. Jesus declares, Luke 22, verse 20, there is a new covenant, a new covenant in his blood. There's a new agreement, there's a new contract between God and his people. Something new is happening here. And then I want you to look in verse 27. No, I'm sorry, 23. Notice how his disciples respond to this Last Supper, this New Covenant. It says in verse 23 of Luke 22, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The disciples were not getting it. The disciples hadn't been getting it. Remember the passage Jason just read this morning? Arguments. Who's the greatest among us? Look at what Jesus says, Luke 22, verse 27. Jesus says, For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And I can't say this for certain, but I'm pretty sure that right about this time, Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer clothing, and washes their feet. You see, The foot washing, it's an example to his disciples, but I'm willing to bet it's probably also a bit of a rebuke to his disciples as well. Well, Peter says, Then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Typical overreaction, right, from Peter. We've seen this before. Jesus answers, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. See, Jesus is now starting to speak in metaphors. He says, Peter, you are clean. You've been washed. He's not talking about physical foot washings. Remember in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Spirit, born of the water and the Spirit. Jesus isn't talking about physical foot washings or bath because, remember, obviously Judas isn't clean from the foot washings, right? Jesus is talking about being born of the Spirit, faith in Christ. When we reach kind of our, the end of our passage or close to it, Jesus says, do you understand? Do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus says, I am your Lord. I am your teacher. You are my followers. Now that you've seen me do this, go and do likewise. Now, I don't know if uh, any of you here this morning have ever washed someone else's feet or had someone wash uh, your feet for you. Uh, when I was uh, a camp counselor, we, we did this with some of our campers. Some of you who just came back from camp. Uh, when I was a counselor, we, we washed our campers' feet. We shared this passage of Scripture with them, and, and it was. It was, a very, it was a very humbling, it was a very powerful moment that displayed the love of Christ I've, I've been to some Christian weddings also where there will be a time where the bride and the groom during their ceremony will take a moment and they will wash each other's feet. And again, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of humility and service that marriage requires. It's a wonderful thing. But having said that, I don't I don't want to elevate foot washing as like a new ordinance. That this is something we do all the time. Uh, you know, the truth is, we do have shoes and we do have socks. Uh, this is good; it keeps our feet mostly clean. Uh, the teaching I don't want to maximize the act while minimizing the teaching. The teaching is humility. The Lord gave this example of inner humility. The mode is foot washing because this is going to sound terrible but I know it's true. I'm sure it's possible to even wash feet with a prideful attitude, right? Because if I wash your feet, who does that make me? Jesus, right? You see, the action is meaningless without the intent behind it. Finally, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master or a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That word blessed, it's a great word. In the original Greek, uh, that word blessed is the word makarios. And makarios literally means happy. You will be happy if you do these things. It's the exact same word that's used in the Beatitudes over and over and over again. Blessed is he, happy is he who follows the example of Christ. So as we wrap things up this morning, I I just want to ask you this question, and the question is, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Now, Now this is, let me clarify, this is not a prosperity, health, and wealth gospel message. Okay, so don't even get me started down that track. I am not asking you, do you want what you think will make you happy? I'm asking you, do you want what Christ says will make you happy? Do you want to be happy? Let me give you a a, a picture of what that might look like. There's a Christian author, his name is Philip Yancey, and he wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. In that particular book, he interviewed another very prominent Christian author, a theologian an academic named Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen passed away about two decades ago. Yancey interviewed him shortly before his death. Now, if you don't know anything about Henry Nowen, he's an absolutely brilliant theological academic mind. The man taught at schools like... Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard. The man published, on average, more than one book per year. He wrote about 40 books during his lifetime. The man was a very sought-after conference speaker. He traveled all over the world speaking for Christian conferences. He had the type of resume that most of us pastors would love to have. He's what's called an easy hire. Okay, he was very well-known, very prominent, very, uh, in many ways, what we would call successful. And then he did something towards the end of his life that a lot of people didn't understand. At the end of his life, he left Harvard, and he went to a community called Daybreak, which was near Toronto. Now, Daybreak is actually a Catholic community home that serves People with very severe intellectual disabilities. And Philip Yancey interviewed Henry Nouwen at this community called Daybreak. Henry Nouwen became the chaplain there, and he also became the caretaker of this man named Adam. Adam was 25 years old. He couldn't speak. He couldn't dress himself. He couldn't walk. He couldn't eat on his own. And during the interview, Philip Yancey noticed just the hours and hours and hours it took Henry Nouwen, just to do the basic care tasks for Adam. Now, Philip Yancey had read a lot of Henry Nouwen's books. He had heard him speak many times. He loved Henry Nouwen. He thought he was great. But he had to admit this thought came into his mind of, like, this is Henry Nouwen, like, you know, I hate to say this, but couldn't there be like a better use of his time? I mean, isn't there somebody else who can take care of of Adam? I mean, does Henry Nouwen have to take care of Adam? Very delicately, he he broached this topic with Henry Nouwen, and it shocked him. Henry Nouwen uh, said to Philip Yancey, no, 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 no. You have completely misunderstood what is is happening here, what is going on here. Nouwen told Yancey, this, this is the quote, he says, it is I, who gets the main benefit now and told yancey it is i not adam who gets the main benefit from this relationship from this friendship and now and spent the next couple hours just telling yancey over and over again how blessed and how many benefits he received from this relationship with adam he said serving adam helped him realize you know he could write about love he could write about humility But with Adam, he learned love, and he learned humility. He realized before just how fixated he was on ministry success or academic success. And he said, actually, his time with Adam really made those other academic pursuits seem boring. He said it actually made it seem a little, actually a little bit superficial, He was quoted in saying to Yancey, What makes us human is not our mind, but our heart. Not our ability to think, but our ability to love. And after the interview, Philip Yancey admitted uh, he was prepared to admire Nowen. He wasn't prepared to envy him now like he did because he had something. And this great academic theologian spent the, the last 10 years of his life with Adam, probably the happiest that he had ever been, experiencing the fullest measure of Christ's love. So this morning as we wrap up and as you go about your day, you go to our picnic, uh, you go back to your jobs and your families and whatever pursuits and projects and activities that we have, I want you to think about this question, this question of would you be happier serving? Would you be happier sacrificing? Would you be happier Humbling yourself, lowering yourself, sacrificing yourself in the example of your king, would you be happier with the fullest measure of Christ's love? Let's pray.